Sahiba Elias. And I'm Siobhan Drew. And, and welcome, welcome to Momentum, Momentum, a race forward podcast where we explore how racial justice work is showing up everywhere around us. Hey, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Momentum, a race forward podcast. I am your co-host Siobhan and my co-host Heba will not be on this episode. She is attending to some very important things right now and I'm going to hold it down for her. I do have an announcement that comes from her body of work. As you know, she works really hard on Facing Race. We have the Facing Race conference every two years. So I'm really happy to deliver this news on her behalf. Facing Race is the largest multiracial intergenerational gathering for organizers and educators and creatives and all leaders in the movement for racial justice. And the big news that Heba would want all of you to know is that registration is now open, y'all. Facing Race will take place this November 17th through the 19th, 2022 in Phoenix, Arizona, in person and online. So if you want early bird or group tickets, those are available. Learn more and register by visiting facingrace.raceforward.org. That's facingrace.raceforward.org. And shouts to Heba, shouts to the whole conferences and convenings team. We are so excited about this year's Facing Race. We're going to get into an interview with our guest, Nancy Wang Yoon. And I will be flying solo for this one, so... Give me all your positive energy. And once again, shout out to my co-host, Heba. We'll see you when you're back. Nancy Wang Yoon is a sociologist and expert on race and racism in Hollywood, as well as the host of the Disruptors podcast. In 2008, she became a professor in the Department of Sociology at Biola University. And in 2016, she began a term as the chair of that department. Nancy is the author of Real Inequality. Hollywood Actors and Racism. She's co-editor of Power Women, Stories of Motherhood, Faith, and the Academy. Her work has been featured in CNN, Elle, Gizmodo, the Los Angeles Times, NBC, and many more. Nancy gives talks on representations of Asians in Hollywood, anti-Asian racism, and how to thrive on Twitter as an academic. Nancy is also a speaker and cultural consultant for top companies, including Amazon Studios, and the Academy of Motion Pictures. In addition to her academic research, Nancy was also interviewed in the PBS documentary, Asian Americans. And she is currently writing a book about her life through the film and television shows that she grew up watching. So Nancy, first of all, I'm glad that you're down with talking about things and then also having a little bit of a kiki because clearly I I like a good joke. I guess I would start off by asking you though about something more serious, which is, How did the anti-Asian attacks, how has that had an impact on your work? Okay, I think it was in the very, very beginning of the pandemic when there were reports of anti-Asian attacks, right? And this was way before I think the country kind of recognized it. But those of us, you know, in the community were very aware that. And also, I think once we heard that there was possible tracing of the original virus to China, most of us were like, oh, oh, (laughs) you know, Asian Americans, it doesn't even matter if you're Chinese American or not, because you know how in this country, we kind of think that all Asians look alike and reduce everyone to um, a single stereotype. And so 
I was very, I was very scared, especially with, you know, the, the unknown, especially in the beginning, we didn't know much about COVID. And so there was, uh, I think I wrote a piece really early on about how there were two things that Asian Americans were afraid of getting COVID and being attacked and how it was emotionally just kind of a double whammy. And it was really hard, I think, to go out, not just because we're worried about catching the virus, but also that we could be attacked both verbally and physically. And I think that once the um, videos were coming out, and then I think it was Atlanta shootings in March of this past, you know, of 2021, that's when I think the country started to recognize, okay, this is not just, you know, a one-off thing, but that, but that we have serious racism problems that we need to acknowledge. And I think that there was confusion. I think uh, as you know, someone who has studied race for a long time, written about it and lived it <laughs> in terms of being an Asian American immigrant myself as a young child and growing up here, I knew about racism. And I didn't really, it was, I think the first time that I recognized that my own country never, or a majority of folks did not know that Asians experience racism at a high volume. So I think that that was kind of a moment where I, and also that other Asian Americans, you know, who maybe didn't recognize things that were happening to them in their lives and maybe never took an ethnic studies and just wasn't, you know, wasn't aware because they were assimilating into majority, you know, culture here. They didn't know either. Right. And so just re recognizing that there was a lot of reckoning that this country needed to do with anti-Asian racism. And so it was, it was really hard, but it was also a moment of, I think mobilization for a lot of Asian American studies scholars where we were, I think post Atlanta shootings, we were like on the news all the time, just talking about this, but that took a toll on me personally, you know, like just naming all the racism and also um, naming the intersectionality of race and, and, and racism and sexism for Asian women specifically because the Atlanta shootings, if you'll remember, the murderer actually said that, you know, Asian women were temptations and he was trying to excise his temptations and he targeted Asian spas specifically, right? And, and murdered, I believe it was eight women, uh, Asian women, uh, or was this, I mean, eight people and six of them were Asian women. And so I think that I had to also explain that racism and sexism intersect for women of color and Asian women in this instance, when it comes to stereotypes of sexualization, exoticization, fetishization, that all that is actually a hate crime <laughs> because they were not going to, you know, prosecute it as a hate crime because he just talked about temptations and, and that just astounded me. I just couldn't believe that that was happening. And so it felt very urgent, but also very taxing emotionally to have to, you know, live through this pandemic, live with the fear and then have to, you know, advocate for my people at the same time. And I know that, you know, this is stuff that the black community has, has gone through forever. And I think that for Asian Americans, a lot of Asian Americans, this was somewhat new just because I think they weren't necessarily facing it on such a mass scale and in popular kind of culture, right? That there was so much news coverage, there were things going, videos going viral. And so, yeah, so sorry, this is a long answer to <laughs> what's going on with anti-Asian racism. And wow, there's, you know, it's just been a long two years with the pandemic. But also I think, you know, what was really cool was being able to talk about 
historical context, right, of um, the Page Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act and how I think disease and and kind of stereotypes of Asians as, you know, going to kind of infect the whole community, those kind of stereotypes, you know, are are long standing in this country. They're, it didn't just come out during COVID. They've been around and they've been intersecting with the way we think about immigration, the way we think about racism. So it isn't just Asians, but just the kind of fear of the other, the xenophobia that this country, even though this country is totally made up of, you know, immigrants, whether they were, um, you know, forced or, you know, voluntary. And so I think that, I think that, you know, we, we need to, I think again, yeah, have this reckoning and, and greater understanding, I think, of what is going on in this country in terms of ver- variety of racism and how anti-Asian racism is also tied in you know, with kind of general racism and fear of the other. Yes. You said so much that people in the audience, I think, will value. Um, I hope that folks will also go look up some of the acts that you mentioned, some of those laws against Asian people, like that stuff is what we need to all learn about. You also were a guest on the PBS series, Americans. And I believe, I want to say Jeff Chang was also interviewed for that series would you weave any of that experience into this kind of elongated answer? Because I feel like you dropped a ton of jewels, but that is kind of related, that series. Yeah, so that series, I filmed that series before the pandemic, and then it came out during the pandemic. So the timing was actually just right in terms of what we needed to know and understand more. Because it's if you have not taken an Asian American studies class, even if you have <laughs> this PPS documentary, it isn't you know it isn't it doesn't cover everything, but I think it covers a lot of what the general public does not know about how Asian Americans are so vital and so central to American history, and so I cover because my you know research and um, interests are in Hollywood. I I talked about kind of early Hollywood breakthrough artists like uh, Sesue Hayakawa and Anime Wong. But the series goes through, I think, immigration history, the, the Japanese internment, but also like I think lesser known, like how Filipinos were here, you know, in this country prior to the founding of this country. And so there's and then, you know, and also South Asians and there's great uh, kind of segments on post 9-11 and so it really covers and also political history the political figures like you know the first uh woman of color i think to congress was patsy mink and so like you know that that was an asian american and so lots of i think history that is not known but so central to understanding you know this country we are part of this country and i think that was kind of the message that asian americans have been part of this country even prior to the founding of the country so this whole idea that we're like recent or all recent immigrants or go back to your country some people have been here you know generations longer than a lot of the you know european immigrants right that think that we that we like to stereotype as quote unquote americans but in fact there have been Asians here since before the founding of the country. So yeah, the and the documentary is just also entertaining. It's got actors and comedians, and I think that and you know it is it is also like I cried. I remember watching it actually, and and also writing the piece about you know surviving the pandemic as an Asian. Actually, that was the piece. Actually, it was about um, how to kind of deal with the rising anti-Asian hate and the pandemic. 
and and I was talking about that it was even like it was sometimes emotionally hard to see the fact that we've been here so long we've worked so hard to build this country and now you know you're you're you know you're blaming the entire pandemic on us it felt so um I felt betrayed you know like watching the documentary and recognizing our belonging and then knowing that there are so many people that are telling us to, you know, get out because somehow we've brought the disease. I mean, we are here <laughs> under the same, you know, circumstance. And and actually, we're doing our part to mask up and, <laughs> and get vaccinated. We have some of the highest, you know, percentages in that because I, I think in, in Asia, they are very aware of kind of public health and our, our commitment and duty to one another as a very kind of communal society. And so, if you, I mean, people, you know, I've been to, I've traveled to Taiwan, I've traveled to Japan, and, and in those countries, people mask up when they're sick. So they are sick and they're masking up in order to protect other people from getting colds. Like that is the culture. And so it's so funny that, you know, blaming Asians, in fact, Asian Americans are working very hard to you know eradicate this by doing their duty in public health so it just there's so many contradictions and ironies and misunderstandings and it feels so hard to kind of be living as an asian in this country i'll just i'll just say that right now i want to thank you for that honesty and just the personal i guess the personal feelings that you shared i know that's a lot i think that folks need to go and watch that pbs documentary asap and if we are to lighten it up slightly, I want to pause just to give the audience a sense of where like, you are and what your background is right now. Can I do that? Because I'm kind of loving the look. Okay, Nancy is coming to you live from what looks like a very like elegant, soft closet. <laughs> That's my guess. I don't know if I'm wrong. I see some, I see garments hanging, like I see a lot of neutrals, some soft blues. So I just wanted to give the audience a sense of like how I'm seeing you. You look like you're kind of calm today. And I know we went deep first. I want to thank you for going there with me. And I want to take it light again and ask you about what we're seeing in pop culture. Um, you mentioned actors and things like that. So I'm thinking of things like Squid Games, Parasite, the popularity of K-pop. Can you talk about what shift we might be seeing currently with Asian representations in media and where you think the shift might be coming from? Oh my goodness. Yes. I think Asians are trendy right now. And hopefully it isn't just a trend, but that it's uh, the beginnings of, I think, recognizing that there has been Asian talent in Asian cinema in South Korea, in Hong Kong, in Bollywood, you know, in the, in the Southeast countries as well. I mean, there has just been Japan. I mean, there's, you know, I think just to kind of give some idea like the last three years the oscars have nominated an east asian director and the last two years they've won which is phenomenal like bon joon ho won for parasite chloe Zhao last year won for nomadland and this year we have the director for drive my car and that's, you know, a Japanese director. And so we have the Academy actually has opened up, you know, it, it, there was um, during the Oscar so white controversy, it was also revealed that the Academy is extremely homogenous. So it's not just in terms of gender and race, but in the kind of like 90%, like in terms of whiteness and, and male, but also over the age of 60 and also predominantly US based, right? So, 
So the academy actually made an effort to open up not just to you know people of color and women, but also international, right? And I think that that international sensibility is now starting to recognize that. Oh my goodness! Like South Korea has had a dominance, yeah, and like you mentioned, in K-pop, in pop music, in cinema, in television. They've dominated this actually in Asia already for a long time. Like I, I was a little girl. I was a teenager when I went to Taiwan and my grandmother, who loves her dramas, was we were hiking and she was she basically told me the entire story of a K-drama on our hike because she would say it was so good. The, the production value was so much better than anything that she had seen. And so, you know, it, South Korea stuff has been awesome for a really long time. And finally, I think in the United States, we're seeing with the popularity of BTS, with the popularity of cinema, like, yeah, like Parasite and, and now Squid Game, even though, you know, these are all kind of like, it's like, they're just indications of, of patterns of excellence that's been around for a very, very long time. And it's funny, because I've started tweeting out like, this isn't the first. And it's like, the recognizing of the West is doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden, it's real. <laughs> but there is that kind of like, oh, my gosh, I've just discovered, you know, Korean blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, it's exciting. And I, you know, I definitely don't want to like, you know, poo poo like enthusiasm, but it is this kind of like a Columbus kind of thing. Like we discovered America, <laughs> when America has already been populated by all sorts of wonderful people that, you know, maybe didn't want you there. And so I think this importing of Asian culture, pop culture is interesting interesting, right? Because people have not, they're not new. Like whenever I went, I, I would go to Taiwan every summer as a kid and I would just fall in love with, you know, whatever pop music and drama was going on there. And, and so yeah, anyway, so, but yes, I think what I'm interested in as a um, kind of U.S.-based researcher also is that post-crazy rich Asians, Asian American talent is also being recognized, right? And I think that we, you know, for the law for forever, I think it's like every 25 years, maybe we'll have a movie. It was like, I think, you know, if we think about the 60s, it was like Flower Drum Song was the first kind of studio production. And then it was Joy Luck Club in the 90s. And then it was, you know, Crazy Rich Asians in the 2018 time. I mean, this is a huge swath of time between, you know, these big, I mean, there are lots of indie movies, lots of talent, lots of, you know, work, creative works that were happening, but Hollywood did not fund, did not green light, did not market until I think, you know, Crazy Rich Asians now, I think, kind of, broke expectations and because i think you know like uh ghost in the shell right that was that was a big kind of controversy with scarlett johansson playing a japanese a beloved japanese manga character the excuse of casting her was that there were no a-list actors that were good enough right but then you have crazy rich asians coming out and I think Henry Golding, he was even an actor before that movie. He was like a, like a, maybe a, I think a travel show host in Malaysia. And so this is brand new talent, right? And so, and now he's like everywhere, right? He's, I mean, he's gorgeous, right? So that helps. And, and I think that, you know, that it, it's really show that something, you know, if there's talent and there's a good story, it's also based on, you know, a New York Times bestseller with Kevin Kwan. And there's three books, so there's three movies potential, you know, and we've only seen the first. And it just, it did so well at the box office. It was, I think, the top box office rom-com in a decade, right? So not just like Asian rom-coms, even though there's, there's not even that many because we really have no movies, but all rom-coms, right? It kind of, I think, showed that this mid-level, because now we're in a point, especially during the pandemic, where everything is like tentpole, 
huge budget comic book movies, right? That's like all Hollywood is investing in. And then there's the streaming stuff, right? And rom-coms, you know, are this kind of mid-level, not too expensive, but, you know, has an audience that hasn't been satisfied, I think. You know, we've been missing those, right? And so I think Crazy Rich Asians really filled that niche. And, and, and also it's a story that hasn't been told. I think that, you know, there's so many Asian American stories that have not been told like the Vincent Chen, the murder of Vincent Chen, you know, which is like a huge hate crime that happened in the 80s. We don't know that story. I mean, within the community, we know that story, but not even everyone. And, you know, the, the documentary Asian Americans covers it. But I think that we would, we don't know that story yet in, in terms of narrative. Not even, I mean, there's a documentary by Rene Tajima Pena, who, who also was the executive producer of the Asian Americans documentary. And that's a, that is like the documentary to see if you want to see. Like, I think every Asian American studies course shows who killed Vincent Chen, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, the, the story of Vincent Chen is that, you know, he was murdered in cold blood, but the murderers, and, and it was, it was a hate crime because it was during the Detroit auto workers, you know, recession and they blamed Japan, but Vincent Chen was actually Chinese and they killed him with a baseball bat. And then they got off. They didn't even serve one day of jail, right? So it was, I think they were fined like maybe three, $5,000 or something. And so the story is a narrative story that's set in America, set in the United States. And I think that we need stories like that to be told, right? So there's so many stories that are Asian American that haven't been told that Hollywood can tell. And I think that there's an audience for. And so I think that, yeah, so with the kind of beauty of Asian culture coming in, finally or in in like a mass mass appeal way especially because of streaming right so now streaming something like netflix they have so much international content actually a lot of their international content not just from asia but also from europe and and latin america i think also you know it's 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 exposing people to and also subtitles people are actually reading subtitles and also they they're doing netflix also does a great job with dubbing or well I don't know. Great job. There's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of controversy about Squid Game, whether they got the dubbing and the translation correct. But anyhow, but all this to say is that, you know, yes, Asian and Asian American pop culture and talent is, I think, finally being recognized in Hollywood. And it's definitely an exciting moment to to be experiencing. And then, you know, this and the anti-Asian racism and, you know, Asian Olympic power, Asian American Olympics, right? We have two golds with Chloe Kim and Nathan Chen. Um, it's definitely, I think, um, Asian Americans and Asian talent is, ooh, it's golden right now, really golden. <laughs> Let's talk about academia. As an Asian American woman in academia, can you talk about some of the challenges you faced or are still facing in the academic sphere? I'm watching people opining that, hey, this country would rather bring in the National Guard rather than raise the standard of pay for teachers. Like, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of debate, and I just want to hear from you since you spend so much time in that space. Oh, goodness. I. Yeah, I'm like, I think one of only in a lot of spaces that I'm in. And I think that this is the experience of a lot of women of color in academia and Asian American women, I think, in the humanities and social sciences are not necessarily like, you know, having a presence. I think there's a, there's maybe more Asians in the in the sciences, in international scholars and, you know, Asian American. But I think that's certainly my experience as a sociology professor it's been you know it's been both like challenging and also i think like you can really make a difference right i think a lot of us feel very responsible for um 
speaking out and, you know, um, challenging systems and advocating for students of color. Like I talked about in terms of the, the advocacy work, I think all of us are exhausted, right? If you're the one of only, you're experiencing a lot of microaggressions, you are probably one of the only ones in the room that's ever like bringing up issues of race and gender and, you know, advocating for marginalized groups. And then, and yet you are, you know, kind of, you have the same expectations of productivity, right? In terms of being a good teacher, um, in terms of publishing and committee work. A lot of times I think Asian American women, along with other women of color are put on diversity committees and, you know, we're expected to kind of do that work. And at the same time, we are experiencing the kind of everyday microaggressions and sometimes, you know, overt racism and sexism. And so I think all that makes it really hard, I think, for for as an Asian American woman and also, yeah, and this kind of questioning of belonging, right? I mean, I know a lot of Asian Americans who are who are told on their evaluations that they can't understand them or something, you know, even if they do or do not have an accent. I have a friend who actually she's she's mixed white and Asian and she teaches Latin America. That's her research. And she has been told that she had an accent <laughs> and, 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 and also that she uses too much Spanish in her class because she's trying to explain concepts. So just this, even, so even as she's just, it's kind of like this, again, like kind of a general xenophobia, right? So anything that's not English and, and squarely white American is a suspect, right? And I think that Asian women, you know, because of that perpetual foreigner stereotype and also this kind of, I think there's a stereotype that we need to be passive and demure. And so as academics, as, you know, powerful, intelligent, knowledgeable women, I've had, I've definitely had, I think people feel like cognitive dissonance when they hear me talk and, and see that my personality is, I'm not like super like aggressive, but it's okay if I were, right? If I were, but because of the stereotype that Asian women have to be a certain way, all any other kind of personalities I think can be can be off-putting to students, right? And but I, I have to say that overall, um, I mean, when I first started teaching race, there were there was definitely a lot of pushback because I think in my department there weren't like the the students were not actually exposed at my university to a lot of um, instruction about race and inequality. So when I first talking started talking about it, it was very uncomfortable for them, and they took it out on me. <laughs> Because I think the cognitive dissonance that I, I shouldn't be talking about this stuff. I shouldn't be making them uncomfortable. And so, but ever since then, ever since our, our, our student population became more majority BIPOC, I think that it's gotten so much better. And I feel a lot of kinship with my students and, and even the white students, I think, are coming in now with a lot of knowledge about inequality. And so I have to say that recently, in the last five years, my teaching has been just splendid. And, and it's great to be able to talk to and help. And, and that's my passion to be able to in, in, embolden, empower students of color to be able to understand, you know, inequality, to understand their own identities and to be able to make a difference in the world. That is awesome. Are there any folks you follow on social media or any groups you're a part of where you get support as an academic of color, especially as a woman that you would want to throw out there for folks? Yeah, University of Michigan has a scholars of color. There's also, gosh, I don't, I, I have to like look it up in terms of okay. actual, but I'll, I'll give you the links. But, um, it's like a support group for, for scholars of color. And I am also part of a, I think it's like social scientists mostly that are actually trying to make a difference in the public sphere. 
And so that's another group. And then there's the National Faculty Diversity Group that is, um, it's an independent group, but it provides a lot of resources for faculty of color, actually all faculty, but it's, you know, the, the purpose is to empower faculty of color. It has a lot of, I think, how to get tenure, how to write, you know, have a good writing routine. I gave a talk to them about how to do Twitter as an academic. A lot of actually universities have memberships because it is a little pricey, but some, some scholars that I know, colleagues, actually put it in grants, you know, that this is or, or actually negotiated as part of their package when they're hired, because it's it gives kind of professional training that and Carrie Ann Rockamore is the leader of this. And she was a she was a she was a tenured sociology professor who then quit and started this amazing, you know, organization that provides so many resources that I think it's like the mentorship that we should have in academia, that especially as scholars of color, that you may not be part of the old boys network, right? So then this provides those kind of tips and helpful guides and, and also community where people, she has like writing sprints and stuff that like, or like they're, they're kind of like writing groups and, and you can join like periodically and these are free. And then it's like, I think you write together for like um, four or five weeks, you know, and you have accountability every day, just like tips. Like, you know, once you finish your writing goal in the day, you give yourself a treat. It's like so Pavlovian, but it's like, we need those because I think academics were so good about delayed gratification. Everything is delayed gratification, but that makes for burnout, right? So much burnout, especially everything that I shared with the microaggressions and having to talk about race and advocate all the time. We are the first to burn out. And so having that kind of mentoring, essentially, and coaching that this program builds in is just wonderful. So I highly recommend that. A lot of my friends actually were able to get tenure through just the boot camps that she, you know, they were finally able to finish that book and get tenure. So it's excellent. Okay. Academics out there, don't say the podcast never gave you anything. Those were jewels, 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 and resources, and we will follow up for the links. Thank you for that. Amazing. Now let's talk about something that we're always told we shouldn't talk about. Faith, religion. You are the host of, or you are a host of the Disruptors podcast, which is a faith-based podcast. So I'm wondering if you find it challenging to showcase Christianity, like in a different light in these times where religion and specifically Christianity, is oftentimes associated with more conservative groups and more right-wing ideology in the public sphere. So let's just light everything on fire with a religion and faith question. You know, I think being a sociologist, that actually came out of my faith as well. Like I, you know, I feel like at its root, it is a faith for the marginal. It is a faith for the underrepresented, the vulnerable populations, because that was, if you read the Bible, that is who Jesus reached out to, the kind of people that were, you know, that the society forgot about or even persecutes, right? And so that was what kind of drew me to sociology. And and also being a person of color, you experience those things and you want to see justice, right? And I think Martin Luther King was actually a sociology undergrad and, you know, he was a minister. And of course, obviously, you know, the, the whole civil rights leader and amazing kind of inspiration for us today, but just did so much to change this country. And I think that when people ask me, what's this Christian stuff about? And I say like, well, you know, I am like an MLK Christian. I follow in that, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm doing anything of, you know, of that level, but I aspire to work as much as I can based on my training and my giftings and 
whether it's through my research, whether through my writing, whether through speaking, you know, in public or just in the classroom or just with my family, right? I, I want to be able to make a difference and it is rooted in my faith. But it's really hard right now because I think, like you said, it's not just so the public kind of Christianity is rooted in an actual movement, right? There is this movement where there's this idea that somehow justice work is anti-Christian or anti-gospel, which is mm. so strange to me. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it makes sense to me in that I think there's Christian nationalism, right? There's kind of a convolution or reduction of Christianity to this kind of nationalist, often, I mean, racist and, you know, movement that actually, I think, makes it that people can say things like you are, you know, you're, you're doing woke stuff. So you're not Christian, right? I've actually been personally attacked even recently over this, right? And so, and having to defend my faith and defend why I even identify as Asian American and not Christian first, as if like, we can just easily tease out these things. And I think there's a mis there's a misunderstanding of what normative identities are that everything kind of in this country is normative white. So when you say that I'm Christian, but I don't say I'm white, Christianity has become white, right? In, in their minds. And, and I identify as Asian American, as an Asian American Christian. And, and those are things that like, I think are very confusing in this time where actually the church growth is in these immigrant communities, is in the Asian American church, is in, in the Latinx church, right? In the Latino, Latina, Latinx church. And the kind of stability and the long-standing Black church, right, in this country and all the work that, I think the Black church has always gotten that, you know, that justice work and religion is intertwined. But then we have, you know, this kind of, his, this movement of kind of xenophobia and fear and fear of the other that has infiltrated certain Christian churches and now the Christian kind of political movement that we know that Trump kind of tapped into. And it's just, it's very polarized right now, Siobhan. And it's very, it's, it's actually deeply disturbing for me. And it's probably one of the biggest kind of crises of what do I do as a Christian of color in this moment? How do I continue on? And I think that those are the things I explore in the podcast to the disruptors. Before me, the host for two seasons was um, Esau McCauley, who is a black theologian from Wheaton College. And he started this, you know, kind of asking the question of how do we disrupt society in both justice ways and faith ways? And, and I think that, yeah, being a progressive <laughs> justice-minded Christian is disruptive because it disrupts the idea or the stereotype of what a Christian it looks like because I think we we and, and and yet it's like those people do exist and they are the loudest right and so I think that here I am you know trying to also bring in people like Jean Luen Yang and Minjin Lee you know who are huge culture makers that uh, I think I, I've talked to some people, they're like, oh, they're Christian. I think there's a lot of surprise. But then when you talk to them, you realize all of their kind of work and their culture making and the, the, the artistry that they do is all infused with faith, right? Even if it's not overt, although Jean Luen Yang actually does put little Easter eggs and, and Bible verses in his, you know, in his graphic novels. But it's, but we talked about like Min and I talked about how it's, it's about love, right? It's about emphasizing the love portion, the acceptance portion of Christianity, which is why I became one, you know, as a young person. I did not come because I someday someone was going <laughs> to, you know, 
don't judge me or, or be racist towards me. That would have been, that, I would not have signed up for that Christianity. So, and, and actually I also came to faith through Asian American churches. So it was like Korean, Korean Christians are some of the most passionate people you ever meet. I went to a Filipino Catholic church. I prayed the sinner's prayer with my Japanese friend who's a pastor's daughter in my front yard. So it's like all of my exposures to the faith have all been rooted in Asian America. So I really am so thankful for that. So I think my, my identity is it's all kind of, you know, talk about, you know, intersecting. It's all like, it's all one, you know, for me. And so I think that, oh, but to have to explain it to or justify myself to actually conservative Christians, because I do run in those circles as well. It's, it's another layer of exhaustion. Siobhan is another layer of kind of uh, discrimination that I experience. I hear you. I hear you. I loved hearing about your your younger experiences with your faith. I love that. And I like that you're talking about love and, and kindness and all of those things that we all could probably practice more of in this moment as well, no matter your faith. So I'm going to just honor that. I want to come with more love in the way that I reach out to people in this time as well. We don't know what folks are going through. So thank you for sharing how you know your faith has informed your journey. I think we've come to that time where we have talked about some of your works, Real Inequality, Power Women, the Disruptors podcast. And now I want you to tell the audience where they can find you on social. Do you want them to follow you on Twitter, Facebook? Where are you active? Yeah, I pretty much live on Twitter. I <laughs> think during the pandemic, it's like physical space is... I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's in a diff different dimension, you know? <laughs> we live on um, the virtual world. So I am on Twitter at Nancy, W-Y-U-E-N. I, I actually, you know, I used to have a love-hate with Twitter, but I have had just so many positive experiences and connections. Right now, this, this morning, I was talking about how Asians have curly hair, like awesome gold medalist Nathan Chen and Queen Sandra Oh, like just celebrating curly hair, you know, and I've had so many people actually say like, gosh, you know, I didn't, I hated my curly hair as an Asian because the stereotype was that I was supposed to have straight hair. And, and so a lot of even, you know, pain coming out and also talking about how, yeah, you know, just the idea of Asian hair is a, is a stereotype, right? Because <laughs> hair texture is not rooted in, in race. So just, you know, even just silly pop culture, not, they're not silly, you know, even any kind of, kind of, discussions of representation it does peel back the the kind of institutional and societal inequalities that we still all live in you know so i just i love that kind of inter you know being able to talk about pop culture and race and that's the sweet spot so if you want to follow me on twitter that is what i tweet about awesome and then you are also you have a facebook page and instagram and you have a a website as well you want to shout any of those yeah, sure. It's all nancywyuen.com. I'm the same handle on Instagram. I think I'm a little bit different on Facebook. It's like Nancy Wong Yun, so W-A-N-G-Y-U-E-N. But it's all kind of like, if you just, if you're on Twitter, just, just follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I, I, am on other, I am on those other spaces, but they're just kind of like, they are like the summary of my Twitter life. <laughs> Got you. Well, shout out to Twitter. I know it's very rapid fire and lots of info. And if you're into the intersections of different topics, Twitter is always a, a fun space. The greatest hits of my, of my tweets. <laughs> I love it. Everyone can visualize it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Nancy. This has been a pleasure. 
I really want to make sure we follow up and get the rest of those resources that you named. Is there anything you want to say in your outro to folks? <sighs> Just love one another and be safe. And, you know, take care of yourselves. Self-care is really important at this time. And and never give up on your dreams. That's what I'm telling myself right now. Like, it's never too old to go. You're never too old to reach out to your dream and, and you know, make a difference. I love it. Thank you so much. Okay, another interview in the can. Thank you all for listening. I want to share something new with you. Reflections, a Race Forward series, is a time-limited podcast, and I'm going to introduce it to you today. Race Forward is so proud to announce Reflections, a Race Forward podcast series, which will house an ongoing number of unique episodes focusing on timely issues, and the first one highlights stories from the immigrants' rights movement. And it was produced and hosted by our own Hendel Leva, who is the creator and executive producer of this very podcast. Reflections is co-executive produced by Cheryl Cato Blakemore, Race Forward's Vice President of Strategic Communications and Public Engagement, in collaboration with the National Partnership for New Americans and PNA. So I want to congratulate my teammates, Cheryl, Hendel, Everyone check out Reflections, a Race Forward series. It's a time-limited podcast. It's going out in our newsletter. You'll see it going up on our social. So please do check out these stories. And I want to just remind you that Facing Race is open for registration. Remember to go to facingrace.raceforward.org. We are going to be in Phoenix, Arizona, and also virtual. So check out the site, get yourself up to speed, and there are ways to get involved right now. So whether you want to submit a proposal for Facing Race or maybe you are interested in a scholarship, you've got lots of options. Uh, So check out the site today. We're going to move into closing and saying our goodbyes. Shout out to Hiba. Shout out to our producer here, Kendi. Thanks again for listening. We want to encourage you to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora, which we are new to. Please go on there, rate, give us all the stars in the world. Thank you so much.